So let's get your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 3. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one right in front of you. You really need to have your Bibles open because today, more than most, will be your opportunity to silently mock me as I cannot pronounce these names. Um, I've spent half of the week phonetically trying to figure out how to pronounce these names. The good thing is, you don't know how to, how to pronounce them either. So I can call them anything I want, and you're not going to know any better. So this ought to be kind of fun. Um, last night, I didn't even try pronouncing one of them, because the way it seems like to me, his name's Harumph, and I am not calling anybody Harumph from the pulpit while I'm actually preaching. So the gates of Jerusalem, let me, let me take a crash refresher course with you. Just to get you up to speed, because if you've not been here, you need to know this information. You have, if you've been here through this series, then this will just catch your mind back up to where we've been. The gates of Jerusalem, ten of them, were entry points that led to specific parts of the city. Now think going to an arena, think Iron Pigs, think... Uh, professional football team, whatever, you're going to go to a stadium, you're going to an arena, you just can't enter any maintenance door you want to. They funnel you towards the gates. And you enter into the event through the gates. The gates of Jerusalem forced people through specific entry points. And if you wanted to get to a specific part of the city, or you wanted to enjoy a particular section of the city or a reason that you want to be in the city, there was a gate that you would enter for that purpose. Gates were the center of their social life. They were the center of their political life as the elders of the city would sit high up on the gates and rule over the people. Gates were important. Now here's what I want you to know, and I've said this, I'm going to echo it again. Walls The wall around Jerusalem, now this is going to have bearing on us, so you got to hear this. The wall around the city kept the wrong people from coming in. The gates allowed the right people to get in. Now that's huge when you begin to think through why we should develop a wall, why we should build a wall. The wall, according to Scripture... That we should have brother and sister around our heart is called salvation. That's the name that God has written on our walls. If you are in Christ, He has built the wall. And it's made of His salvation so that you no longer fear where you'll go for eternity. That you no longer doubt the love of God. That wall should be secure. We constantly monitor it. We constantly fortify it. We constantly rebuild it if it falls. But it can, in a moment, collapse. You know that when you've been through, if you've been through very, very difficult times, and all of a sudden you look and the wall is in rubble around you, you've got to rebuild. The gates have a name as well. The Bible says in Isaiah that the gates' names are praise. In other words, as the right people are coming into the city of God, into the community of the church, into the life of God's people to enjoy redemptive benefits, as you walk in through that wall, your heart responds with adoration. How many of you, don't, don't raise your hand, rhetorical. How many of you, your heart 
your heart latched on to the worship this morning and you begin to rise to exalt Christ. Your heart began to think through the mercies and the grace of God that was evident even in this last week. Your, your tongue began to sing a new song. That's entering into the gates with praise and adoration of our, of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So the wall is called salvation. The gates are called praise. But friends, listen, and this might yet be the most important thing so far this morning. The weakest part of the wall was always the gate. If our enemy is going to overrun us, and you know he's trying to, let let me just pause for a moment and camp on that. Christians, let me speak to you, and I I don't assume that everybody here has bent their knee to Jesus Christ and been washed in his blood. I don't know, hopefully, but I don't know that. So, Christian, let me, let me just talk to you for a moment. You have three enemies like I do. They hate you. In fact, tomorrow, I hope, you're going to be more like Christ than you are today. Hopefully, that's the path. Meaning this, listen, Satan already hates you today. And he hates you for at least two reasons. One, because we're made in God's image. Yes, it's distorted like a rock in a mirror and it distorts your image. We're distorted because of sin. But Jesus is rebuilding that image. So tomorrow we, we hope and we pray we're going to look more like Christ than we do today by way of patience and by way of love and kindness and non-startlement. Hopefully tomorrow we'll look more like Christ than we do today. Guess what? Satan will hate you more tomorrow than he does today. Do you know that? You don't, if you don't know that, you don't know the vitriolic hatred of Satan. He hates the image of God in us. And he hates us because Christ lives in us. He doesn't hate any more, anyone more than Jesus Christ. He despises him. All of human history, he's been trying to foil and thwart the mission of the Messiah. If Christ is living in you more tomorrow than he does today, his hatred for you is going to be increasing. And not only does Satan, is Satan one of our enemies, he's going to attack the gates. They're the weakest part of the wall. You've got two more enemies. The other one is your flesh, not the organic material that you can pinch the unredeemed part of our heart that still wants what we want more than what God wants. We all have it. God's killing that part of us, but it'll be a battle till the day you go to eternity to be with Jesus. He, that flesh rises up and says, go against what God wants. That little serpent's going to be in that tree saying, God doesn't want you to be anything less than what I'm telling you you could be. So reach up and grab it. Illicit fruit is still here today. You have another enemy, and it's the world system. We live in it. It's inescapable. The monastic monks tried to get out of it. They couldn't. It was not even the bent of the gospel. He doesn't, God doesn't want us to escape from the world. He wants us to live in this world and not be of it. To, to live in this world and be effective, but not be loving the world. The world system is that which opposes God. And it's constantly saying to you, you need this in order to be happy. So you've got three enemies and I do too. 
You've got the enemy who is the prince of this world, who is funneling his enticing power through the world, ordering it after his own image, and he's putting carrots of temptation in front of our flesh, and he's saying, you will be more happy if you follow me than you will if you follow God. That's your enemy, and he's going to be, they're going to be attacking the gate. That's always the weakest part of the walls. So you've got to fortify the gates. So it's not really surprising that Nehemiah is taking us on a tour and profiling and bringing our attention to the gates more than anything. And if we're going to be wall builders that can enter the ruin of somebody's life, or if our own walls are going to be built back up so that we're strong in our salvation and our hearts are full of praise to our God, if that's going to happen, then we've got to pay particular attention to the gates. Every one of these 10 gates have a symbolic meaning. Do you remember last week, if you were here, Nehemiah started us on the north side the eastern corner, the sheep gate. The sheep gate was where they brought the sacrificial lambs into Jerusalem, destined for the temple. Quick stop at the pool of Bethesda. John 5, 2 mentions it. To be washed right to the temple, to be sacrificed for our sins. And the sheep gate symbolizes that if you're gonna, if you're gonna have a wall of salvation around you, the first gate you gotta walk into is the sheep gate. You gotta get to the cross where the Lamb of God was sacrificed, where the blood of Christ can it take away our sins and the power of the gospel flows. If you've not been through the sheep gate, friends, listen, you're not saved. You can't be. And you can have no wall of salvation around you. It always begins at the sheep gate. In fact, Nehemiah will begin us at the sheep gate. And at the end of the chapter, he ends us at the sheep gate. Because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It always starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus to his glory. If you're going to rebuild somebody's wall, let's just be a little more concrete with that for a minute let's say you've got somebody that you love and their their marriage is broken down i just listened to a testimony this morning we're met we're interviewing members this morning is what we do elders and pastors and their testimony is amazing and she said when she came here her and her husband were there when they came here in october she didn't know if she could continue in this marriage it fell over until she heard the worship and heard, that was when I was preaching on the cross, when she heard the sermon and the word of God began to come into her, that was the night she says she got saved. She's got a family again. Listen, if you've got a family or if you've got a marriage that's in ruin or children that are walking away from the Lord or if you've got your life that's in utter chaos, where you start again is at the sheep gate. Don't try going to the fifth gate. you got to get back to the power of the gospel and cling to the cross again and let the power of Jesus' blood heal. That's where it always starts. But Nehemiah doesn't leave us there. He moves around the corner to the fish gate. The fish gate, you remember what Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, I want you to be followers of me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to go on mission And if you're going to go on mission, you're going to be eyewitnesses to what I've done for you on the cross. I'm going to save you at the sheep gate, and then I'm going to give you a mission. And that mission is always to testify of Jesus Christ. Listen, if we're not 
testifying of what God has done in our lives, our faith will plateau. It will be stunted. You've got to go through the fish gate, take your non-believing family and friends, and bring them back to the sheep gate. That's the fish gate. That's mission. And we all have the same mission. You can call it whatever you want. And the Bible gives you lots of latitude in that. But the mission is always about making you a fisherman of people. And the gospel is the lure. And the way you present it is is love and mercy and faithfulness and relationship. And as they bite on the hook, garbed in the lure of the gospel, attracted there by your love and your mercy, and they walk through the fish gate, they will find themselves at the sheep gate and the wall of salvation will be built. That's the power of the gospel. But Nehemiah is going to walk us around this wall. We're going to come to the third and fourth gates today. But let me do what my father used to do. My dad was a church builder. He was a contractor. And when my mom and I would visit the work site, every once in a while, dad would take us around and he'd introduce us to the, the crews, the subcontractors. He didn't want people to know his wife and his youngest of six kids. So we'd be introduced to these. I want to introduce you because... Nehemiah introduces us to a lot of the work crews. We're not going to stop at all of them, but some of them are notable. And you get to verse 4, let's all climb into it, chapter 3, verse 4. And he introduces us, we meet Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, whose name is barely pronounceable, much less recognizable. I mean, how many of you say, oh, I remember that guy. I wrote a paper on him. You're probably lying. Yet he's included, and I want to pause on this. He's included. Here's a guy we can barely pronounce his name. We really don't know much about him, yet he's included in the eternal word of God for his good and faithful service. Doesn't your heart lurch when you read that? Listen, you're going to stand, Christian brother and sister, like I am, in the great multitude before the throne of Jesus Christ. And he's going to open up books. And he's going to read your name. And along with the reading of your name comes a summary of your life. Don't you want Jesus to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. He's not saying that for everybody. Listen, you've got to get on mission. If you, if you don't get on mission, you can't possibly hear Jesus say that. If there are people in your lives and in my life that God has said, you've got to present the gospel. You've got to correct them. You've got to bring grace to bear. You've got to put the gospel around the hook. And you've got to lure them in with mercy and love and relationship. And you're not doing it. You, you cannot possibly hear that from Jesus. Because the fish gate says everybody's got to get on mission. Here's a guy on mission. He's building the wall. He's included in the eternal word of God for his good and faithful service. So let me take you back a little bit and tell you why it's distinctive that this man's name is being read. 
See, the Jews, you remember this from the beginning, the Jews were overrun by Babylon and they were taken, Assyria actually up north, they were taken into, up into the land of Assyria. Then Babylon defeated Assyria and they came back and now they overran the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is and they carted the people up into now the territory of Babylon. And so now they're in exile. Seventy years later, just like Isaiah prophesied, King Cyrus says, whoever wants to go back home to Jerusalem, you can. They went in three waves, 90 plus years apart. The first wave comes back. And this is where we begin to get a little bit of a glimpse of who this Merimoth is. Because his clan, by the way, by the way, it's so funny because I take too many things for granted. And I mentioned last night something, and a guy came up afterwards and says, I never knew that. I cannot believe I never knew that. You know nobody has last names in the Bible. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. Nobody has a last name in the Bible. Instead, how they genealogically grouped you is to say, like me, for instance, who my dad is Robert, Tim, son of Robert. Nobody has a last name. You're always referred to as the son of somebody. So we've got Merimoth, the son of Uriah, who was the son of Hekaz. And the clan that belonged to Hekaz came back in that first exile, and he claimed to be a priest. But he couldn't prove it. He couldn't validate it. Ezra chapter 2 speaks of this. And so he was not allowed to serve in the temple. He wasn't allowed to serve as a priest. But there was something else against this man. He had a mixed marriage. If you want to serve as a priest, you've got to have a pure bloodline. And he was of a mixed marriage, so now his bloodline's not pure anymore. By the way, this was the design of Assyria. They mixed the population, Jew and Gentile. Those were the Samaritans in the time of Jesus Christ. Those of half-Jew lineage. This was a half-Jew, and he wasn't allowed to serve as a priest. Listen, can I tell you something? You've got to get inside of a Jewish mind for a second. That is such... A slam against the Jew, you can hardly even know it. To have a mixed bloodline was to be an unclean dog. And he wasn't allowed because of the strike against his lineage to serve. But all of a sudden, years later, we see Ezra who brings the silver and the gold on the second wave back, the second returning group. He brings the articles of the temple. And who does he give them to? He gives them to Merimoth. Telling us this, they were able to finally validate that he's from a priestly line and they were able to redemptively restore the bloodline. Do you know what that says, friends? This is how grace works. I found out the day that my father died, none of us ever knew it. Six kids, not one of us knew. He was married before. How's that for a shocker? We're going through old albums, picture albums that no, they've never even seen the light of day in our, in our lives. 
And all of a sudden we see my dad in a suit with his arm around a woman in a wedding dress. And we're going, that doesn't look like mom. Who's that? We go back to mom and she says, you know, we never wanted you to see that picture. Never wanted you to know. Here's what happened. My father was not a believer. Billy Graham came to Syracuse, New York. He got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Had just literally gotten married. He felt God's call into ministry to pursue Christian studies at Houghton Bible College in New York. His new wife said, you go to that college and you go into that ministry and I'm not staying married to you. And he said, what am I going to do? He followed the Lord and she left him. Never knew that. You've got stories like that too. You've got stories about what your grandparents have done. They have brought shame to your lineage And this is what grace does. Grace works generationally. Listen, take heart on this, parents, that God's grace that is working in you is going to work in increasing fashion in your children. Pray grace to them and trust what God does. It might look bleak now, but God knows what he's doing. Sin works the other way. Sin increases in genealogical legacies. Grace on outworks sin and brings the favor of God. This is what we're seeing in Merimoth. Merimoth, whose grandparents weren't allowed to serve as a priest, weren't allowed to even be recognized as full Jews. And all of a sudden, grace comes to bear to restore bloodline. And here's Ezra handing the articles of the temple into Merimoth's hands to serve in the temple. Past failures do not inhibit present grace. Somebody ought to be saying, amen. You guys are dead. He will bring, here's what Psalm says. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Remember, God will bring justice forth and it will look like the sun at high noon. And righteousness will shine. Have you ever not been recognized for what you know God has given you to do? Because of maybe your past and they won't trust you? Now you know what it's like to be Merrimoth. You ever been accused of something that you did not do? Well, now you know what it's like to be Merrimoth. You got to wait on the Lord and listen. He's going to bring your righteousness to shine. And when your time comes and the call beckons for you to stand on the wall, don't hold your past against the people of God. Get on there and serve. That's what Merrimoth did. He's a very godly man. But let's notice another group that worked on the wall between the fish gate and the gate of Yashanah. Look at verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. These were fellow Jews. These were those in authority of Tekoa. They were the nobles, the ones that were used to being in charge, and they would not work. Can you imagine? Listen, can you imagine? Because this goes both ways. Can you imagine these nobles one day standing before Jesus and books being open and their names mentioned. And all of a sudden what Jesus reads is this, you would not stoop to serve me. Can you imagine hearing that? Because I'm going to be honest with you, some of us are going to hear it. And it ought to frighten you. 
It ought to be the worst thing you could ever imagine hearing other than get away from me. I never knew you. The second worst thing I think you could possibly hear from Jesus is you would not stoop to serve me. If you've not gotten on mission, you're not serving God. And if you don't, by the power of the gospel, get on mission and correct that trajectory in your life, this will be what you're going to hear. It's not that they would not do manual labor. Don't think that. It's that they didn't want to submit to the leadership of Nehemiah. The word stoop is an expression meaning to have a yoke on your neck. They would not let anybody put a yoke on their neck. If you fast forward it to a modern day, to this day, our day, church age, they would not submit to the leadership of the church. They said, my way is better than your way, and I don't like you telling me what to do. I don't like you suggesting how I ought to live my life. I'm not stooping to serve the Lord just because you ask. That's the nobles. And every church has nobles who will not serve the Lord. They're prideful men and women who will not obligate themselves to serving God. Our church is not an exception to this. Thankfully, listen, take heart, Cornerstone. Thankfully, they're not the norm under Nehemiah's leadership, and I believe they're not the norm in Cornerstone. But they're like a large rock in the middle of a river that forces the water to go around them, and you can't help but notice them. And despite their arrogance and their unfaithfulness, look what it says, their people surpassed them. Their people, the people of Tekoa, served on the wall. Listen, you know how large this wall was? There's two theories. One's two miles long and the other one's two and a half. Let's just assume it's the smaller one. Two miles. The western wall that you're seeing on this map was 1,700 feet long. They surpassed their leaders who would not serve. Not only did they surpass them, look at what it says in verse 27 of chapter 3. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ephel. Listen, they didn't just do one section of the wall. They got that section done and they said, where else can we serve? We want to do more for you, God. And so they did another section. That's amazing. All without leadership. Because their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Finally, we've looked at a few crews, a couple crews. Now we're getting to the gate of Yashanah. This is the third gate. And as we look closely, I want you to notice that the Jews, they never used new stones. You will never read in the book of Nehemiah that they went to the quarry to get new stones. They cleared the rubble, got back to the foundation, and they took the same stones and they rebuilt the wall. And there you begin to see the lesson for us in the gate of Yashanah. Let me carry that truth through for a little bit. You see, Yashanah means old rather than new. It means that which has been seasoned and been around for a long time. And likely, it probably got its name because this is the old western wall of Jerusalem that had suffered damage. That's likely where it got its name. It's the old gate. But the tour, remember, the tour has gone from the sheep gate, the power of the gospel to save, gone through the fish gate, past the fish gate, the mission gate, 
where we become fishermen for Jesus. And now the new child of God steps to the old gate. And listen, it's the first truth that you've got to build your life on as your walls rebuilding. If you're a brand new Christian and you pass the gate of Yashana, you're not going to make it very far before your wall crumbles. If you're a rebuilding Christian and you neglect the gate of Yashana, you'll never be able to rebuild. It's impossible to build the wall without this gate. Because this gate is the Word of God. The old, timeless, eternal, infallible, old Word of God. And Jeremiah beckons us by writing, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls the old gate friends is the entrance onto the ancient paths the way and the wisdom of god that he has revealed in his word this is the old gate you want to get onto the ancient paths here it is that's the only gate you can do it it's through And in the word of God that he speaks to us, that he strengthens us to build, that he reveals his plans to us. Listen, if all you do by way of nurturing your soul is listen to me preach, you're in a sorry state. Why would you do that? Listen, when I'm preaching to you, what you're hearing is the word of God through me to you. Remove me from the middle position. Don't stop coming to church. I'm not suggesting that. But get me out of the middle position. You go to the ancient path. You go to the old gate, the gate of Yashana. And let God speak directly to your heart through this. You don't need a middleman. It's great to have a preacher, great to have a teacher, great to have a mentor and a discipler. You don't need them. And if your life is built on only what they interject into your soul, you're emaciated. You've got to get the word of God, go through the gate of Yashanah, let him speak to your heart personally, first person. But you know, the world, remember one of our enemies, the world is forever looking for some new truth. It thinks the old truth doesn't fit us modern people anymore. In fact, the modern church preaches what they think is a better set of the version of the truths. You want to get into the theology of the day? You're going to hear about reimagining Paul. Reimagining Paul means that you can't read the letters of the Apostle Paul in modern thinking. You've got to climb back into first century or you'll never understand what Paul is saying. You know what that is? That's an incredible indictment on the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can still interpret to a modern ear what the ancient path says. There is so much garbage in the modern church. You can't buy it all. You've got to listen by going to the Word, go through the gate of Yashanah. Let God speak to you personally through His Word, and He'll straighten out your thinking. But it's not, listen, that's hardly the first time this has ever happened in human history. Listen to Peter Drucker. Every few hundred years in Western history, there occurs a sharp transformation. Within a few short decades, society rearranges itself, its worldview, its basic values, its social and political structures, its arts, its key institutions. And 50 years later, there's a new world. And the people born then can't even imagine the world in which their grandparents lived. We are currently living through such 
just such a transformation. This is what's happening right now. It's called postmodernism. And it says that all of the Puritan preachers and all of the preachers that have gone before, they're suspect. They didn't know. They were boxed into a theology. You can't trust them. So let's all pull up at the table and let's all have another theological discussion. And whatever emerges from that discussion, that's our new theology. And this is what's driving churches into liberalism. This is what's destroying the infallible eternal God. They got to get back to the gate of Yashanah and realize the ancient path was right all along. And you get back on that ancient path through the word of God. This is 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Please don't let it be you. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Don't let that be you. Get the gate of Yashanah rebuilt. If our enemies... Man, this is probably it. If you haven't heard anything yet, just hear this and you can go back to sleep. If your enemy overruns this gate, friends, it's a deep slide into a pit of despair. Because if he could convince you that this is not relevant and trustworthy to today, you will base your life on any new version of truth out there. And you will wander off the ancient path. You've got to re-oil the gate and get into the word of God. Are you there? I mean, let's just be honest. Listen, it's not going to do us any good to tour the wall. If change doesn't occur in our lives, are you in the old gate. Is it well traveled by you? Are you in the word of God daily meditating so that you're a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and everything you do prospers? Listen, don't buy the prosperity theology version of that. They've wandered off the gate. Go to Psalm 67 and you'll learn God will prosper us so that we make his fame great. Prosperity doesn't end with our betterment. It ends with God's glory. So the next time you move into a house and every day you're amazed, I cannot believe, God, that you provided this house. Be amazed at his glory, not thinking you deserved it. That's Psalm 67. That's Old Gates theology. That's Yashana living on the old path. And when the word of God is buried in our hearts and we love it and we pursue it and we're sitting in the knowledge and the intimacy and the relationship of God, we're going to be like Psalm 119. Let me read you four excerpts. When my whole heart I seek you, David says, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You want to overcome addiction? The answer is the gate of Yashanah. You got to climb through the old gates. And you can say with David, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. It doesn't feel drudgery. You don't sit in the word of God and nothing comes. You love it and God speaks right to your soul. He's restoring and rebuilding your walls. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You're thinking on the word of God all day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. This was David walking through the old gate. 
Is it you? I can't answer it for you. But you've got to oil that gate and you've got to rebuild it. Before we pause at the next gate, I want to show you some wall building principles. Look at verse 10. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Hiramoth, repaired opposite his house. There were around 40 crews that built this wall and these gates. Remember that number, 40 crews. And many of them did so right next to where they lived. Listen, God's likely not calling most of us to the other side of the planet. He's calling you to wall build right where you live, right in your families, right in your neighborhoods, your schools, your jobs, your church. This is where most of us are going to find the section of the wall that God has assigned to us. And you see that throughout chapter 3, they built opposite their house. They built near where they worked. They were rebuilding where they lived the majority of their lives. And how interesting to note, listen, not one of these 40 crews were contractors. Not one of them were skilled craftsmen. Listen, look through the chapter 3. You're going to find this. None of them were bricklayers. None of them were masons. None of them had seminary degrees. Let's bring it to modern church day. None of them had divinity, masters of divinity accolades. None of them had years of experience building Jerusalem's walls. They said, I'll build. God said, good, I'll do it through you and I'll show you how to do it. You can never say to us that, you know what, I can't serve in that ministry because I didn't go to school to learn how to do it. God says, I take people that don't know what they're doing and I help them do it. Therefore, I get the glory and the fame. Now, one work crew was skilled in building. Two miles minimalist view, two miles of wall, ten gates, multiple towers, four of them. And not one of them had a life of bricklaying. And ladies, I really want to speak to you for a moment. Look at verse 12. There were women on the wall building next to the men. Listen, they weren't just bringing them their coffee breaks next. They were building. They were repairing Women of every age in God's kingdom have labored next to men. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4, 3. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. He says about the women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. You've got notable women who, Luke chapter 8, verse 3, made an income, earned a wage, and gave that money to support Jesus and his disciples. Ladies, you are indispensable. If you do not step on the wall, the church will suffer. And your place is side by side with men, not at our feet, as the great Puritan commentarian, I can't remember his name, Matthew Henry said, right, Kalian and Christy? Not over our heads, side by side. It's why a rib was taken, not a foot bone or a skull bone. When it comes to serving, yes, there are roles that men must occupy. But when it comes to laboring for the gospel and laboring in the wall, it's side by side. Ladies, climb up there with us. You're indispensable. Men, I'm going to tell you something different. Just get to the wall, will you please, and serve? You really don't need to worry about that with ladies. And not in my pastoral experience. Women far outserve men. 
Come on, guys, get to the wall. Here's the last gate we're going to look at today. It's going to be more brief. The valley gate. 1,700 feet between the old gate and the valley gate. You've got to do some walking. There's a pretty good distance. And that alone, there is a lesson for us because, listen, you get saved at the sheep gate, you step on mission at the fish gate, you ground your life on the exciting truth of God at the old gate, and life's pretty exciting for a new Christian as there's a bit of a honeymoon period. When you're rebuilding your wall from chaos and tatters, it's pretty exciting to be walking with the Lord again, but there's a long way before you get to the valley gate, and listen, it's all downhill. And it's inevitable that you're going to find the valley gate because the valley gate is the gate of trials and difficulties. That's why there is a lowness to the gate. It's why it's down in the valley, the gate that overlooks the valley. You go through this gate and you can't avoid it. You're going to go into the valley of difficulty, into the valley of trials. This is the gate that symbolizes it. And by the way, whenever you read about valleys in the scripture, you're often being taken symbolically to trials. Listen to this one, Psalm 23, 4. You're all familiar with it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Nothing grows on the mountaintop. Everything grows in the valley. Let me put that a little differently. Listen, please, listen. You will never grow when you're on a spiritual high. You will grow when God walks you through the valley gate and says, it's time to get some more sin out of your life. And here's my trial. And I'm bringing it to you. It's custom made for you. And it's squeezing your heart so that you can see the sin like a tube of toothpaste come pouring out of your life through your words, through your doubt, through your anger, through your actions and your behavior. And when you see them, you begin confessing them. You begin agreeing with God and applying his mercy, which is always greater than our sin, right to the balm of Gilead of your soul. That's how we grow. We all hate valleys. Nobody likes the valley gate. We wish it would drop and be enclosed with a wall, but it's necessary for our faith. Roy Hessian wrote in his book, The Calvary Road. It's a little book. I really encourage you all to get it. He wrote about a conversation. He didn't really actually write this in The Calvary Road. He's the author of that. But he had a conversation with an East African missionary. Listen to this. The missionary, Roy, asked him, how could, how, could, how could revival be sustaining itself for years in East Africa? What's the secret of this? And the missionary said to Roy Hessian, says, you people in the West, he's from England, but it applies to us, you people in the West, you think that revival is when the roof blows off. But in Africa, revival is when the bottom drops out. Because when the bottom drops out, you're broken. And when you're broken, you've got one place to go, and it's to your Savior for mercy. That's when he'll bring revival. Listen, if God has you at the valley gate... Even though you want your flesh recoils, you want to despise it. You've got to see that God is leading you into a deeper form of brokenness so that you can cling to his mercy and he can revive your heart. 
this gate, the valley gate, it's made of a low opinion of our own power and goodness and a high opinion of God's. Listen, there's a difference between the gate of misery and the gate, the valley gate. Brokenness and, listen, brokenness and misery are almost diametrically opposed. A lot of us get miserable, but when you're miserable, you blame your situation on other people and God. That's what misery will do. But when you're broken, you accept, I'm here because my sin, and I could get out of it because of God's grace. And you move towards God, the roof will blow off after your bottom falls out. And revival will come to your heart. Maybe you're at that gate. You alone know. Maybe you're at the valley gate. I often can kind of sense when people are when I'm preaching because as soon as I look at them, they look away. You guys are sick. Let the word of God do its job. Man, if you're at the valley gate, don't despise it. Don't let your heart stay in misery. Let it break. And when it breaks, move to God's mercy. Because he doesn't want you staying at the valley gate. Listen, he's got six more gates for you. He wants you to move on, but not until he revives your heart and gets your faith a little stronger than it was before. That's brokenness. Maybe that gate is down. And you bore you barred it up and you locked it and you said, no way, God, I'm not going through another trial. I'm not even going to walk with you. Lift the bars back off the gate. Let God do his job. And we'll see what good things he brings to your life. Nehemiah is an awesome tour guide. And we are going to learn so much. We got six more gates and we're only in chapter three. I hope you're here in 10 years as I finish this book. (laughs) we got a lot more to learn. If you're at the Valley Gate, friends, get your heart back to the mercy of God. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us. Thank you for what we're about to do in communion. As Pastor Tim comes and the worship team, Lord, I pray that our hearts will once again be broken at the cross and fill our hearts with confidence and faith, Lord, that your mercy can always outdo our sin. It's in your name we pray. Amen.